Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson's Unhappy Wednesday. Just a quick recap on the never-changing rules of the world. The three things that any functioning country must have in ample supply are food, water, and energy. Those are the fundamental necessities of life, not diversity, equity, and inclusion, food, so water, and energy. If you have a surplus of food, water, and energy, you win. If you don't, you lose. Now, that may sound unfair, but we did not make the rules. Nature did. We can choose to ignore them, but those rules will never change. Sorry. Thankfully for Americans, we live in a country that is remarkably abundant in all three of those things. The U.S. has the most fertile farmland in the world. We've got more potable fresh water than virtually any other place. And critically and rarest of all, America has the largest recoverable oil reserves on the planet. We are number one in that category, and that matters maybe more than anything. Now, they may be telling you on CNN that so-called renewable energy, windmills, solar panels are about to power the world. But that's absurd, and no one corrects them, and somebody should because a lot is at stake. If your nine-year-old starts telling you, I'm like Superman, you have to correct him before he jumps off the garage. The stakes are high. So it is incumbent on the rest of us to point out the people telling you that have no idea what they're talking about. We are not remotely close to a green energy power grid or anything even approaching it. In fact, as of today, the world is powered, as it has long been, by fossil fuels. Fossil fuels, that's where more than 80% of global energy comes from. Not from windmills and solar panels. From oil and gas and coal. And that is not going to change soon. In fact, the world's fastest growing economies, that would be India and China, are using more fossil fuels than ever, not less. So why is every person in charge, from the people who make the ads at Nike, to the energy secretary, to the president of the United States, to every anchor on every channel on television telling you exactly the opposite? We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. At best, they are ignorant. They're not engineers. They are politicians and ideologues. They're the ones telling you that boys can become girls just by wishing it so. And they've commanded the rest of us to believe that. But unfortunately for them, the principles of social justice do not apply to power grids. You can't just rename them and get something different. No, you have to create new and better power grids. And we are nowhere near that. And we will not be anywhere near that during the course of our lifetimes. Sorry, that's reality. And you cannot yell loud enough to make it change. For the foreseeable future, oil and gas are essential to civilization in an utterly non-negotiable way. And that should be great news for America because here in the United States, we have a lot. We are rich because we are rich in natural resources. That's why we won the Second World War, for example. When previous generations said, as they often did, that God has blessed our country, this is what they were talking about. Yet suddenly, strangely, the United States is suddenly experiencing shortages of both food and energy. And that's why prices of these things have risen, because we don't have enough of them. How did that happen? You should know if you care about the future of America, your children's future, you need to know how this happened. Well, Joe Biden offered his explanation of how it happened today at an event in Ohio. Watch. We made incredible progress on the the economy from where we were a year and a half ago. We got a long way to go because of inflation, because of the, I call it, the Putin tax increase. Putin, because of gasoline and all that grain he's keeping from being able to get to the market. It's just embarrassing. It's grotesque, actually. And at this point, it's dangerous. And no one believes a word of it because it's provably untrue. And we feel, since this is a news network, 
a moral responsibility to prove that it's untrue. So here we go. Months before the war in Ukraine began and somehow Vladimir Putin secretly seized control of gas prices in the United States. How did he do that? Before any of that happened, the magic happened. Sober people, a petroleum analysis firm called GasBuddy, decided to do a simple calculation. They wanted to put rising gas prices in context. Here's what they did. Math. They determined every year-over-year price change in gasoline prices in the United States going back to 2002, 20 years. And they found this. From November of 2020 to November of 2021, that would be roughly from Election Day to the end of Joe Biden's first year running the country, gas prices in the United States went up by more than 66%. That was the single highest year-over-year increase since 2002, which happens to be the year that government started tracking those data. Now, this happened before Russia invaded Ukraine. Why did it happen? Super simple. Joe Biden, on the campaign trail, told us he was like Superman. And then he proceeded to jump off the garage. He told us he was going to end fossil fuels. And because no one took him seriously because he's senile and wasn't actually going to win, no one followed up with, what are you, insane? How are you going to do that? And so he kept going. And then he became president somehow. And then he followed through on that promise. He canceled pipelines. He terminated oil and gas leases. He rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement without explaining why we should. And by the way, if the climate is such a crisis, an existential crisis, and China and India are using more fossil fuels than they did 10 years ago, and nobody says anything about it, maybe they're not really sincere about this global warming thing. And then on top of all of that, Joe Biden pumped trillions more dollars into the U.S. economy, thereby devaluing the U.S. dollar, making everything, including energy, more expensive. You know what happened. That's all true. And it was done on purpose. It was done to change our energy supply from what is cheap, efficient and the source of all of our wealth to something that Biden and his donors control, the green economy that will make us poor and that is, in fact, causing famine around the world right now. So that's what happened. As a political matter, since this is still sort of a democracy, it happened way too fast and scared the hell out of people. And polls showed that Democrats and Republicans, no matter who they voted for, were worried above all about rising energy prices because it hurt them directly every single day. And by the time Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine, the Biden administration had found a scapegoat. Maybe that's why they encouraged him to do it in the first place, which they did. So Joe Biden started yelling, it's Putin's price hike. Putin did it. But that's so dumb. It's so provably untrue that no one believed it. Even people who wanted to believe it, people who voted for Biden, who want windmills and solar farms, they couldn't believe it because it's absurd. And in an election year, that's a huge problem. So the administration had to do something. That's why in late March, in an act of desperation, Biden did maybe the worst thing that he has done since becoming president. And that's saying a lot. He started to sell off one of this country's most important natural resources, one of our most valuable assets. It's called the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the SPR. It's controlled by the Department of Energy. So what Biden could have done is produce more oil domestically. But that would have been too easy and too good for the United States and its long-term interests. Instead, he decided to do something so crazy and so dangerous that only someone who was intentionally trying to harm the United States would even consider it. But most people never even noticed. Here was his announcement in case you missed it. Today, I want to talk about one aspect of Putin's war that affects and has real effects on American people. Putin's price hike that Americans and our allies are feeling at the pump. I know how much it hurts. Our prices are rising because of Putin's action. There isn't enough supply. 
And the bottom line is, if we want lower gas prices, we need to have a more oil supply right now. Today, I'm authorizing the release of 1 million barrels per day for the next six months, over 180 million barrels for the strategic from the, from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. This is a wartime bridge to increase oil supply until production ramps up later this year. And it is by far the largest release of our, net, of our national reserve in our history. So you watch that and you realize really the whole point of the Joe Biden presidency is to humiliate the rest of us and think less of our own country, the place where we were born. You can just imagine Barack Obama and Susan Rice and Ron Klain, people who truly dislike the United States as currently constituted, saying, let's make this guy president. That'll grind it in their face, a guy who can barely talk. So it's hard to hear anything Joe Biden says because it's hard for him to say anything. But if you listen carefully or read a transcript, you will learn what he just said is that we're releasing a million barrels per day for a total of more than 180 million barrels from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, which is held in caverns in a couple of states. How much is that? It's a staggering figure. So let's put it in context. The reserve can hold more than 700 million barrels total, but it didn't have that because Congress, by the way, as you haven't been paying attention, has been selling off our Strategic Petroleum Reserve to pay off debt. So by the time Joe Biden arrived, there was far less than that. There was about 568 million barrels of oil in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Now, no president in American history has ordered a drawdown this large. In 1991, at the beginning of Operation Desert Storm, which was an actual war with real American soldiers involved, the U.S. government released 17 million barrels of oil as a way of assuring a stable supply of global crude. The U.S. released just 20 million barrels after Hurricane Katrina destroyed parts of the Gulf Coast where so many refineries are. But now we're releasing many times that figure from the reserve, all to protect the Democratic Party from getting what it deserves in the midterm elections in November. And as a result of that, unbelievably reckless, in fact, criminal decision, our strategic oil reserves are now at their lowest level in nearly 40 years, and they are dropping fast. Again, none of this needed to happen. There was no reason to tap our strategic petroleum reserve when we could produce the energy here, and we're, in fact, producing it until Joe Biden took office. But at the same time, you have to be honest, principles of supply and demand would suggest that this would work in the short term. Releasing all this oil should have lowered gas prices until the reserve ran out, which it will. So you inject more petroleum into the market and prices for gas should drop. But here's the amazing thing. That's not happening. Since Joe Biden started releasing all this oil from our reserves, which he does not own, you do, we do, what has happened to gas prices? They haven't dropped. They've kept going up. Huh? In mid-June, the price of both regular unleaded and diesel, critically, hit all-time highs, well over five bucks a gallon nationally. How could this be? It really was a mystery. It violated the most basic rules of economics. But now, thanks to a new report in Reuters, we know why. It turns out the oil being released isn't for us. It's going to India and China. According to Reuters, and we're quoting, more than 5 million barrels of oil that were part of a historic US you know, emergency that's... reserve release to lower domestic fuel prices were exported to Europe and Asia last month. The piece continues, quote, cargoes of SPR crude, oil from our reserves, were also headed to the Netherlands into a Reliance refinery in India, an industry source said. A third cargo, buckle your seatbelt, headed to China. To China. So as gas prices set records 
in this country, as American citizens who are born here and vote and pay taxes, cannot afford to fuel their own cars, the Biden administration is selling off our emergency oil reserves to China. That's not an indictable offense. It's certainly an impeachable one. And they should impeach him for that. Are they going to sell the redwood forest to China next? How about the water rights to the Great Lakes? That's the equivalent of what he just did. Now, if you're keeping track, they didn't even need it. China and India already have access to very cheap oil from Russia. Why? Thanks to the Biden administration's lunatic ban on Russian oil imports. For moral reasons, it was a moral victory. The people of Ukraine, remember that? Zelensky. He was George Washington, said George W. Bush. You wouldn't know George Washington if he got in the shower with him. According to customs data, China spent $19 billion on Russia oil, gas, and coal earlier this year. That's double the amount they spent over the same period last year. India spent $5 billion on Russian oil. That's up five times from what they spent a year ago. So we just made Russia a ton of money. That's why the ruble is so strong as the dollar is getting weaker. Russia has raked in $13 billion in additional revenue from India and China compared to the same period last year. Following all this? This is how we're punishing our enemies by selling off our own most valuable assets and watching Russia and India and, my God, China get richer? Now, on top of all of that cheap Russian oil, China is getting petroleum from our emergency petroleum reserves. The crude, by the way, in the SPR is the best crude that we have. It's called medium sour crude. It's the easiest to process. And we're giving it away to a government whose whole goal is to displace us on the global stage and crush us. The Chinese will be cruel masters when they run the world. They're not like us at all. By the way, that country, China, also happens to be a longtime business partner of the Biden family. Now, a function in Congress would investigate this immediately. The last president was impeached for, for what? Having a phone call with some corrupt Ukrainian politician? <laughs> but no, they can't be bothered. They're still yelping about January 6th. It was an insurrection. They're trying to ban your hunting rifle. So the White House is able to ignore the whole thing. Here's Joe Biden's glass ceiling breaking publicist just yesterday. There's a Reuters report um, out this morning that says that more than 5 million barrels of oil that were released from the emergency oil reserves were exported to Europe and Asia last month. And some of it reportedly was actually heading to China. Uh, is the administration aware of those reports? And um, you know, does, it, does the president mind that some of this oil that was meant to uh, ease pain for consumers is headed overseas? I have not seen that report, so I would honestly have to go look into it and see what what the truth is in that in that uh, statement that you just laid out and see exactly what's happening. I, I just have not seen that report. How can someone that dumb be that arrogant? Or is there actually a connection between dumbness and arrogance? Probably so. But if someone asks you in the White House briefing, oh, by the way, is the U.S. government selling our strategic petroleum reserve to our main enemy in the middle of a gas shortage? You probably should have an answer or at least seem embarrassed that you don't. It's a very simple question. Why does customs data show that we are sending millions of barrels of oil to China? Huh? It's been 24 hours since that briefing. We still don't have an answer. And of course, that tells you what's really going on here. This is not a mistake. It's intentional. As if to make that as obvious as possible, over the weekend, Joe Biden's communications staff tweeted this out under his name. Quote, my message to the companies running gas stations and setting prices at the pump is simple. This is a time of war and global peril. Bring down the price you are charging at the pump to reflect the cost you're paying for the product and do it now.
What is like nationalizing the gas stations? So he's attacking small businesses in the United States. Running a gas station is not a profitable gig. It's not like running Apple or being a private equity baron or doing any of the things that Joe Biden's donors do. It's not like being Nancy Pelosi who somehow got super rich. How'd that happen? No, it's a small business. So he's blaming them as he sells our national assets to our enemies. So no one with a basic understanding of economics can pretend to justify what that tweet says. It's just too stupid. Even CNN wouldn't swallow it. Watch. Christine, it's like there's a bad smell in the room and the president is just pointing to the dog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but look, he this is a real problem for the White House because people put gas in their car all the time and they're feeling feeling this pain. They say there's so many factors at play. It's not like you can just lower the price of gas, you know, with waving a magic wand. The president was talking about the people who sell the gas. The 145,000 gas stations are independently owned. They're small businesses, essentially. And they have higher margins on their candy bars that they sell than they do on their gas. Well, exactly. And that's literally true. They make more on a Snickers bar on a percentage basis than they do from a gallon of diesel fuel. But we may be blaming the wrong people here. Corrine Jean-Pierre, <laughs> please. She has no idea what's actually going on. She just reads from the binder, barely reads, whatever. They have to workshop sound bites like Putin's price hike. All right. They're not making any decisions. The people who are making decisions are former Obama staffers like Brian Deese. He runs the National Economic Council. He's Joe Biden's top economic advisor. You can thank him. We should put his picture on the screen more often. On Thursday, he told us accidentally maybe what's actually going on, why the Biden administration is deliberately sabotaging the United States by crushing our energy supply for the benefit of China. Watch this. Well, what do you say to those families who say, listen, we can't afford to pay $4.85 a gallon for months, if not years. This is just not sustainable. Well, what you heard from the president today was a clear articulation of the stakes. This is about the future of the liberal world order, and we have to stand firm. <laughs> yeah, we've got to stand firm. <laughs> the liberal world order. How's that working for you, by the way? Is there anybody who is happier because of it, except for people like that? No. But they don't care because you will own nothing and be happy. What they didn't tell you was that China will own everything, including our oil supply. Wait till they come for the Great Lakes. Tim Stewart is the president of the U.S. Gas and Oil Association. We're honored to be joined by him tonight. Tim, thanks so much. Uh, for coming on. So, you know, to, to someone who's not in the business, as you are selling off an asset like this and allowing it to be sold to China seems like criminal, honestly. You, you know, Tucker, you articulate it better than just about anybody. Uh, okay, good day, May 40 here. The, the world may be burning down around us, but I am willing to stand here and talk about radical love and inclusion. I want to move past partisan politics. I want to move to a higher plane, things that we can all agree on about love and, and wall socket sex. And let me just speak in praise of, of older women. Right? And this is not going to be some kind of Luke Ford, MILF extravaganza. Right? This is going to be a very classy show. Right? But I've got my policy disagreements with, with Nancy Pelosi. I, I, I'll admit that. But she's looking great. I mean, a lot of 80-year-old women are really well-preserved these days. And to think that for, for so many years, I have been limiting myself to dating women under 40, when there are so many, like, fine-looking women in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, 
I mean, I disagree with Nancy Pelosi about gun control, and I disagree with her about welfare payments, and I disagree with her on so many things, but I don't disagree with with this presentation. I mean, this is this is a great look, and it's going to be a very classy show. All right, this will be a show that you can you can share with your children who are over the age of eighteen. All right, I'm going to keep this like a very elevated, very respectable show. All right, this is not going to be some kind of you know Luke Ford milf extravaganza. All right, so so this is Martha Nussbaum. Like, what about what about preeminent philosophers? All right, she is seventy five years of age. Right, uh, this photo was taken six years ago, so she was sixty nine. I mean, this great philosopher, and she she looks good. She looks she looks good, and she's a convert to Judaism. And, and who can who can ever forget her epic work, the the fragility of goodness, and then to follow that up with cultivating humanity, a classic defense of raw reform and liberal education, and then that seminal work, sex and uh, social justice. And then how about how about hiding from humanity? I mean, she looks great. I mean, and so smart. I mean, just talking we're talking in the complete package. All right. I mean, this is I mean, this this photo is when she's sixty three. I mean, and she's still got it. I mean, she's got it intellectually, she's got it cognitively. She's got honorary degrees like like you wouldn't believe and, and awards. Right? So so poor poor Jeffrey Epstein. All right. He was diddling his life away with these 14, 15, 16 year old girls. Like he was just throwing away his essence all over these teenage girls when he could have been building a meaningful lifelong relationship with a woman his age, someone who is his equal, someone who'd be willing to call him out on his BS, right? Someone who'd not be afraid to stand up to him, right? Someone who would, would challenge him. I mean, don't you want to be with a woman your own age who's willing to challenge you? I mean, think about the growth. Think about the emotional intimacy that you can build over, over the years. I'm talking about Let's let's transcend genital sex. All right. Sex isn't just about like hard bodies and hard organs and, you know, contortionist positions and, you know, gymnastic aptitude. I mean, sex, sex is really about the heart and, and the mind and, and emotions. It's about two souls coming together. And at this time of social dislocation, I think it's it's really important that we learn to deepen our emotional involvement in the moment and just optimize the depth and breadth of our connection with, with our partners. All right, this is David Schnark's classic work, Passionate Marriage. Right, it's time that we broaden the repertoire of sexual tonalities, styles, and meanings that you can use to engage your partner and increase the duration and the variability of your encounters. Right? It's time to reduce the anxiety that interferes with pleasure and connection. And it's time to increase pleasure facilitating anxiety, novelty, and reduce situational distractions. It's time that we expand the emotional energy that we exchange with our partners through displays of eroticism and sexual vibes. It's time to enhance our anxiety tolerance and our ability to soothe our own frustrations and disappointments without wanking. Right? You can learn in this book how to hug till relaxed and self-soothing is in chapter 12. 
I mean, this is an opportunity to resolve underlying tensions, marital issues, and increase our capacity for desiring and loving our partner of many years, no matter how old she is, right? What does sex look like at the limits of one's sexual potential, you're asking? Well, David Schnarr calls this wall socket sex, all right? That's the sustained electric jolt of sex on the boundaries, right? This is not some crude plug-in and pull-out, where bam, thank you, man, sex. This is the opposite. Wall socket sex involves physical and emotional union in the context of consuming mutual desire, heart-stopping intimacy, and deep meaningfulness. I mean, we're talking about multiple levels of psychological involvement, sex that taps all capacities that are uniquely human, including mutuality, integrity, and spirituality. Like, when was the last time you brought mutuality, integrity, and spirituality to your sex life? All right, we're talking about wall socket sex that is far more than general response. It's far more than orgasms, right? And it often occurs independently of either one, right? You may be so taken by wall socket sex that you can't even reach orgasm, right? Your initial experience of wall socket sex can be disquieting when you spent decades having sex with your, with your spouse without it. Right? I mean, you're going to you're going to break down in tears when you finally get to wall socket sex. And guess what? Older people are much more likely to have wall socket sex because our, our piece of meat model of sex suggests otherwise. Like old age is when this is most likely to happen. Wall socket sex offers other shocks. You have intensely erotic intimate experiences that arise out of nowhere. Right? When you experience wall socket sex, Dr. David Schnack says, time stops, external reality fades. There is a sense of being transported to another place and time. Are you with me here? Your consciousness changes. Right? Separate acts blend into a single prolonged event. Right? A million delights merge into one. Boundaries between you and your partner shift or cease to exist. You feel your partner next to you. It's as if your bodies are intermingled. Your, your skin feels open. Your pores are enlarged. Your emotions appear on your partner's face. You see your essence embodied in your partner. She knows exactly how to touch you. She moans at the exact instant everything seems transcendently perfect to you. Your partner's face melts, taking on unusual and unexpected emphasis and character. You watch your partner undergo age changes. Right? You know what she looked like in childhood. You know what she's looked like all along the way. You see the child and the parent and the grandmother in your, in your partner all at once. And it's great, right? There's profound mutual caring and joy that overflows the bond between you. You move to tears. You appreciate other people past and present. You appreciate what it means to be human, right? You will see music. You will hear feelings. There will be a glow, an aura, an electricity that will radiate from your skin. You'll create energy, joy, and beauty beyond the norm through the most profound sexual union, right? So David Schnark wrote in his book, Constructing the Sexual Crucible, the quest for unfulfilled sexual potential is akin to the quest for excellence in sound reproduction. So I've been on a search for years. You think I just woke up in the morning, like plugged everything in when I started live streaming on a regular basis seven years ago, and I just sounded this awesome? No, right? The, the pursuit of experiential realism in high fidelity sound systems, like the, the, the you know, fantastic sound that you're getting now, I mean, this took money. This took time. I spent $500 on, on a consultation to get this high quality the sound, all right? It wasn't just something that I documented by science, all right? So, so 
if, if you're willing to invest, you can have the high quality sound. You can have the, the, the high quality wall socket sex, and it gets better when you get older. Right now, you can make do with perfectly adequate, you know, moderately priced, you know, cam sounds. All right. And, and if you don't get the side by side comparison where I've got my like $400 Shure mic and all the other software and hardware that I've got going, you know, you may well be satisfied with all those other bloggers who just speak to their iPhone. But here's the great news sexual potential is a lifelong pursuit. And this is all in uh, David Stark's great book, Passionate Marriage. Intimacy is not for the faint of heart, right? Marriage doesn't have to just be the waste paper basket of, of emotions, right? The old, old story, how do you tell the married couples in a restaurant? Because they're the ones who don't talk to each other, right? And how do you know the couples who are dating? Well, they're always talking, right? So why aren't married people talking? Because they don't want to hear what the married partner has to say. So how do you know what you don't want to hear your partner has to say? Because you already know, right? This is called lack of communication. But uh, the silence of married couples is really testimony to their good communication. All right. The world is an exciting place out there. And uh, beautiful, beautiful time here in, in Los Angeles. Just uh, tons of illegal fireworks. I mean, the whole city was just going up in, in flames, right? Just uh, so vibrant, so, so full of life, our city. People with still some leftover stimulus money just going out there and lighting up the, the night sky. Now, not many people had it as exciting as uh, Minneapolis, all right? I mean, it really happened in Minneapolis, man. It was just going down there. Keeping it real in uh, Minneapolis. Okay, let's get an important update on one of America's most important politicians here from Tucker. Personal, but about a, an epiphany we had. We saw the future of the Democratic Party in the form of a Rhode Island state senator called Tira Mack. So she uploaded this remarkable campaign video where she twerks upside down for the camera. And this struck us as the perfect distillation of the beliefs of the modern Democratic Party. But not everyone felt that way. We're not endorsing it, by the way, but there's never been anything we've seen on video that explained the Democratic Party more clearly than Tierra Mac upside down twerking on the beach. But some people complained. So today, Tierra Mac released a video defending her twerking video as if she needed to. And she came to the same conclusion that we all have. People only criticized her because they're racist. Watch. Did I know that the internet was gonna respond this way? It is 2022 and I'm a black woman. Of course, deep down, not even that deep, I knew that y'all would act this way towards a black queer woman. Y'all are consistent. But sadly, I've been called worse things on the internet than like me upside down twerking. Y'all gotta treat black queer women better, please. <laughs> so she's oppressed because she went to an Ivy League school for free 
and then serves in the state house in Rhode Island. So obviously she's the weakest among us. But her claim that she's being discriminated against, that any reservations you may have had about that video are racist, really is aimed at the Democratic Party. And to prove they're not racist, that woman needs to be at least the Secretary of State right now. Out of here, Tony Blinken, pale and male. And then on the presidential ticket in 2024, we will not accept less. We hope Nancy Pelosi is listening, by the way. She needs to. Here she is this weekend. There she is. Why not tear Mac, honestly? So Joe Biden has become so toxic that the Democratic Party wants him out. Actually, Democrats who are running for statewide office in November don't want to talk about him or appear with him at campaign events. We're going to go right to a Senate campaign in progress and give you the latest. We'll be right back. Wow. Okay, let me... Let me catch my breath. So much to catch um, up on. I learned about this. Someone sent a link to this. It was actually an article written by Jared Taylor, and it discussed Martin Rojas. Martin Rojas was someone who worked as his um, specialist in special plans or <laughs> director of special plans. I don't know what that even means. It sounds like he was involved in some way um, with American Renaissance. I, I remember a couple of years ago, I was getting an excerpt from Making Sense of Race published at Amran. And I just sent Jared an article. I just sent, I sent Jared the article as uh, like a um, markdown file or a HTML or something like that. And then Martin responded to me. Um, I had known Martin a bit. Uh, he, going this back going to, on in Minneapolis, gosh, I think even 2014, certainly 2015. Are you guys and okay? he was one of these kids that was hanging out in what I guess could be called the hate house. Uh, well, it was affectionately and, you know, semi-ironically that called was, the hate house. Um, and it included a number so of people wow. who were kind of fanboying on the, you know, it, it wasn't even the, the alt-right effectively. It wasn't even quite known as that. Another one. And Fuck. particularly around There's Devin Soche and Kevin Deanna, these are guys who you might or you might not know. Uh, Kevin is a content mill for the movement. He writes the same article over and over again um, about uh, how we're being occupied by illegal immigrants and all of this kind of stuff. Um, it's Devin just works for Jared Taylor in some way. I mean, I think he does the news feed and things like that. I mean, it's always good to have someone who's on staff who's, uh, you know, competent and can do stuff. Uh, but I don't know. It just seems like to have these people employed in a movement that doesn't have a lot of money, it just seems like a lot of wasted money going to people who aren't like developing anything or publishing anything, or I, I just, I don't know. Um, I'm not a fan of Devin Soche, um, but whatever. Um, Martin was a very nice kid. Um, he is a very uh, kind of pushy in many ways. He, he's the type that will like start sending you emails or getting a hold of your number and calling you and then wanting to like talk to you and things like that, a bit on the presumptuous side. Um, he also, um, he was doxxed about a year ago, and this group has existed for, um, since 2020, actually, more, I mean, more or less, and I, I would say less, because now we're getting more people since Substack. I'm very confident about Substack. Um, I do not think they're going to deplatform me. I mean, I'll, <laughs> I can be proven wrong in a moment's notice, of course, but they say the spotlight's off me, B, Substack seems to be um, really reasonable. C, they're hosting people who I think 
2022 as opposed to 2016 really are more toxic and are getting raising the hackles of liberals like doing covid denial or vaccine skepticism all that kind of stuff um and they remain on substack like alex berenson and, and company so i generally think this is good and so i'm very very happy that i can expand the group and the audience but we kept a very low profile at the beginning and um Anyway, I, I, we talked about the Martin Rojas question because Martin got doxxed and he got just doxxed out the wazoo. I've, I don't think I've ever seen such a detailed dox. So it wasn't just, this is Martin, he is a white nationalist of some kind. I mean, they discovered all of his, and he had multiple pseudonyms, and they talked about where he lived and all these just weird details that I don't even know how they got these details. I mean, it sounded, I mean, again, on some level, I didn't care that much, but it did sound like an ex-girlfriend had given a lot of information out. Again, I don't know. I, personally speaking, I have just disconnected from all of those people. Um, I find them, I just don't find them helpful or healthy. It's just, they want to remain, they, they want the, remo the, mo the movement, quote unquote, to just stay in place okay? and to endlessly talk about, you know, illegal immigrant or black crime. And they, I, I just, I find them intellectually uninteresting. I don't find them to be good people, to be honest. And I, I just, I don't know. Um, but so I have, I am rarely in communication with them. Um, but, uh, so I saw this docs, I saw it on Twitter or something like that. And this kid had written like, I don't know, over the course of three years, he had probably written like 150 blog posts and articles and so on, which I guess on some level, that's great. But again, it's, it's a content mill. And like, I don't remember anyone ever sending me one of these articles or saying, oh, wow, this is an interesting take or whatever. It was, uh, hold on just one second, my son has a question. Yes, Alex? Okay, Alex, I'll be upstairs in a bit. Okay, sorry. He just wants to report on the uh, plot of Rescue Riders. <laughs> um, so this kid had written like hundreds of articles and they're all just the same thing. I mean, I, I almost think that one could create a, an algorithm, like a content generator where you put in a few news hooks you know, like the latest happenings in Washington or some crisis on the border or something like that. And then it just generates a white nationalist article, the take on it. It's, it is algorithmic. And, you know, I'm sorry to speak ill of the dead. I don't have any animus with Martin, but what are you doing on some level? You know, we don't need more of this. And I say this as someone who, you know, when I, when I first started my career, I mean, social media was a lot less impactful than it is now. Podcasting was very rare. I mean, the podcast that I would do it's unusual. And like, you could only post like 20 minutes of audio on sites. You had to like do part one through three. Anyway, um, you know, there was, there was almost like, maybe you could say a dearth of popular content. Well, now there's, there's too much. There's, you know, everyone can just go gen up a blog and everyone wants to do that and so on. And so there's just, if you want to take on how Joe Biden hates white people or something, you can get 50 with a simple Google search. And I don't, I don't think any of that's useful. Anyway, this is all personal opinion. Nothing against Barton. Um, I was not friends with him. I didn't really like him, to be honest, but there's nothing really wrong with him. He was kind of like a fanboy who wanted to write fan fiction. And <laughs> I think that's the best description. He was nice, but he didn't really have a lot going for him. I mean, he doesn't, he didn't have a, a college degree. He, you know, he's just some kid. And he, his education was kind of like, I read an article online or I watched a video. And anyway, um, again, nice kid. I don't have any problem with him. It just is what it is. But he got doxxed and they doxxed his home. They did everything. I mean, it was just a disaster. And it's just kind of like, was this worth it? You know, like was, was writing fan fiction worth that cost? And, you know, we could have, to be honest, like 
everything would be the same regardless of that blog zero. You know, they, I, I don't know. Um, and then a year on, I think that was around a year ago that that docs happened. It was sometime in 2021. I remember talking about it and saying many of these things. Well, I texted um, uh, an older friend of mine, um, Hannibal Bateman is his name. And um, again, I like him very similar to Martin in many ways. A little smarter, certainly, but kind of a similar thing of like never really wanting to professionalize and just kind of fanboying. And, you know, I, and I, I texted him and I was like, well, you know, I was like, I'm just curious on some level, but I, I kind of think I know where this is going. There's the death of a 29 year old and who was ostensibly at least in good health. I was like, I, did he kill himself? And that was more or less confirmed. So, you know, I don't know. It's like, I think there's a really big issue in the movement that kind of goes from both sides. And, and I think it's, it is tragic in many ways. And it's something to like talk about. And, you know, I, sorry for leading off with this, but I think it is the kind of thing that should be discussed. Um, there's no, you know, when you do this kind of thing, you, you really have to know going in that you are going to be ostracized to at least some degree. Now, in many ways, it's not as bad as some people make it. I think some people are just terrified of the docs. And I remember after Charlottesville, there's that case with, I believe his name was Andrew Dotson, who was a scientist of some kind and seemingly a, a uh, interesting guy and who had actually a lot going for him. And he was, he was at Charlottesville, you know, he's a bit autistic, kind of an online type character. And he was dressed up with, you know, I don't know, this like Americana and like Trump paraphernalia. And he was, you know, IRL posting, so to speak, but not in the way that you saw other people in the alt-right who were just, you know, uh, you know going up to a camera and saying, gas the kikes or something. He was actually much more reasonable. He's a more intelligent guy, educated. Um, he was doxxed, he was fired, and then he committed suicide. And you just see this pattern. And I, I guess for a lot of these people, you know, my question is, it's like, you're not, by just writing a blog that has already been written, you know, like, I don't know, like alternativeright.com existed. Um, you know, Amren existed and still exists. You know, there's just no need to rehash all of this stuff. You might very well get doxxed because the Antifa, they, they want to feel like they're accomplishing something. And they have moved on from people like me um, because in some ways there's nothing more you can say. And the, the mainstream media kind of quote doxed me and quote, um, and they want to dox like the Nazi next door, basically. They want to find that guy who you think is, is all right, but he's actually secretly posting messages on the TRS forum, or he's written a blog for VDare or whatever. And I, I guess my, my whole sense of this is like, none of these, these people create kind of the worst of all possible world scenario where they're not ultimately willing to really professionalize. And to be frank, so many of them don't really bring something to the table. You know, like what they do is post. They want to be on a podcast. I mean, I'm, I'm, re I'm reminded of this one person who I remember meeting in 2017. I'm forgetting his name at the moment. Um, I was never friends with him or anything, but it was, it was his, he went by the idea of like Coach Fenstock with TRS. And I got invited to a party of his and it was him. And this guy, he was a nice guy, um, not very impressive. He wanted to be effective. I mean, his pseudonym, I think kind of said it all. He wanted to be a kind of um, camp counselor for... Um, TRS people. He wanted to host them at the park at his house um, and be their mentor of some guy, but he wanted to be kind of like their celebrity. Well, as it turned out, he worked for the State Department and in a uh, somewhat small capacity. I mean, I don't think he was affecting foreign policy to the slightest degree. He was more of a youngish functionary, but nevertheless, he was someone who was placed in 
the structure. I mean, who knows? Um, is there a chance that he could have risen up and actually affected foreign policy or been important? Sure. Uh, stranger things have happened. I think there's a, a great deal of mediocrity in the system. But he never did because he wanted to host a podcast. And I think he still does host a podcast. And he was immediately fired. So we will never know whether Coach Fenstock could have, you know, affected the future of the world in the American empire or, you know, I don't know, learned early that they, that the evil uh, AOC regime of 2032 was about to jail all dissidents. And he gave us a 24 hour head start to flee the country. Or something. I mean, I'm halfway joking, but I'm actually not joking. That's a serious thing. Um, yeah. So <laughs> radical politics can destroy your life. Uh, getting out of step with social norms can destroy your life. Uh, experimenting with your identity can destroy your life, but some ways are far more likely than others to destroy your life. And perhaps the best book I've read on all this stuff is Mind, Modernity, Madness, The Impact of Culture on Human Experience by Leah Greenfeld. Okay, this book came out in, in 2013. And so she, she notes that, that nationalism starts out for many people as a form of therapy. And you see this on the dissident right, that nationalism, ethno, racial, religious, civic, right? Nationalism often begins as a form of therapy. It becomes a way of coping with their affliction. So we're not losing, generally speaking, that there was an example of a medical student who got busted for posting on countercurrents, a Jewish medical student who got into trouble uh, for posting on countercurrents, but generally speaking, and yeah, there was a PhD students who've been to Charlottesville and and scientists. All right, so there, there are some very high achieving, very intelligent people who destroyed their lives through their involvement in distant right politics. But generally speaking, we're not losing doctors, lawyers, dentists, and and accountants. All right. For most people who join the distant right or the, the distant left, it's a form of therapy. It is a way of coping with their afflictions. It's their way of, of struggling with their lack of an identity, their lack of a life that works. And then at first, like like many things such as drugs or, or alcohol, it starts off as a panacea, but then turns into what you may just call anomie, which is the complete breakdown of any moral values. Anomie. Anomie. Right, anomie. It's the, the complete breakdown of any moral values. So you see a lot of people enter distant politics to find, try to find some values, right? They're attracted to the values. And then I'm thinking about someone I used to do shows with, that uh, that distant politics was, was a, a journey in for him for him finding values, but then it led to a complete breakdown of any moral Anime. values. Anime. Right. And so it starts out as a panacea for mental illness, and then it turns into ever greater mental illness. So I was really getting into it with, with a friend on just a related note about uh, drinking. So so much of normal human experience is kind of foreign to me, which is why I can so well relate to people who embrace dissident politics or addictions as a way to cope with the emptiness that they feel inside. All right. So 
much of, of what is normal and happy and healthy is kind of a foreign world to me. I'm a lifelong vegetarian, unfortunately, at age 56. I'm not willing to do the work to learn how to eat meat and fish. I, I don't drink, and it may very well be that I could drink moderately, but given my manifold addictive tendencies, given the addictions that, that run in my family, given my self-destructive urges that are often way too close to the surface, I think it's probably best that I don't drink. But I recognize that most happy, healthy, effective people I know do drink but they don't tend to binge drink. So I had a friend who said he was going to, he was going on vacation and he was planning to binge drink. And so as, as much of what is normal is like a foreign language to me, it's a foreign, foreign world. Like I, I see people on TV and movies and in real life talk about how much they love their parents and how much they love their home and their family. And I don't know if it was just wasp, reserve. I don't know if it was just my Anglo-Saxon reserve, but that's kind of a foreign language to me. I had appreciation for my parents. I had varying degrees of respect for, for my parents, but I, I, I usually found home was, was a pretty cold place and I couldn't wait to get away and form a new life in, in Judaism. So a friend is going on vacation and he's looking forward to doing a lot of uh, binge drinking. And so you need to explain normality to me. All right. Like what's the benefit in binge drinking? Because as for, for my perspective, as someone who doesn't drink, all right, it's just annoying being around people who progressively get more and more impaired. Right. Objectively speaking, when you drink alcohol, you become impaired. It's just, to the degree that you become impaired. Objectively speaking, when you drink alcohol, you become more stupid. All right? Your, your IQ drops as you consume more and more alcohol. So for me, hanging out with people who drink, I've done it hundreds of times in my life. And as people drink more and more, it's, it's never a pleasant thing for me as the objective observer who's outside the dance. And I recognize there are all sorts of mysteries in life that are only available to people who are in the dance. And unfortunately, much of real life, I am not in. So I remember telling my therapist about these two girls at a, what, what do they call the party before people get married? An engagement party? Yeah. So these two girls like saw each other and squeal and kind of jumped into each other's arms. And I was kind of making fun of it. And my therapist said, well, don't you really wish that that could have been you, that there are people who, who would squeal with delight at seeing you and, and fall into your arms. And, and I guess he was right. So it's not really a good way to be being the observer to, to much, of, uh, much of life. But uh, yeah, I got, in, got into a discussion, like what are the benefits to, to binge drinking? And so I understand it, it reduces your inhibitions so that you can be more honest but I mean, imagine Donald Trump, like if Donald Trump was was a drinker, I just don't see the benefits to him or to having a president of the United States who was a binge drinker or a drinker. I just don't see the benefits to to the country. But for people who need to let off steam or just transport themselves out of out of the humdrum reality, right, then then I, I guess I can see some benefits to that. But it's a foreign world to me.
which is not that I'm superior to this foreign world because I recognize I am a deeply insecure, self-destructive, multiply addicted person. So by no means am I standing here and saying, oh, no, I know how to live because there's so much of what, what makes for a happy, healthy life. I just, it's just a foreign language to me. But uh, I was talking to some friends, like one of the benefits of drinking and one is comradeship, right? It's something that healthy, happy people like to do together. And so I'm pro- people tend to be suspicious of other people who don't drink. And so it's a way to connect with other people. Right? It's a communal activity, which in certain Occasions can be a religious activity, right? You can say a, a blessing over, over the wine. You can you can drink as part of as part of a a religious process. But yeah, you get peer acceptance. It's usually accompanied by all sorts of good things like cheering and performance endorphins, and uh, your brain gets numbed, which is not appealing to me. But then. All the things I've done to numb my brain, I guess, with pornography and crazy attention-seeking and, you know, adrenaline pursuit. But, yeah, I guess a lot of people like to like to get numb. So there are drinking contests, right? There are drinking games. You can be part of a fraternity. Right? It's... Uh, it's that communal interpersonal connection, which is unfortunately still a foreign language for me often. So yeah, people tend to be suspicious that I don't drink. So, you know, I think comradeship is probably the biggest benefit to drinking and most happy, healthy, effective people I know do drink. It does overall seem to be part of a life that works for people with a secure level of attachment, for people who are normal, right? For people who, when other people treat them well, will be more inclined to get closer to those who treat them well. And then for people who treat them badly, they will naturally withdraw. So if you're a healthy person like that, then moderate moderate drinking is probably good for you. Now, you may say, hey, I find ideological abstainers creepy, to be honest. Well, I don't abstain on the basis of ideology. I abstain on the basis of I'm deeply aware of my own self-destructive and addictive tendencies. Right? I think I said pretty clearly that for most people... Uh, drinking is part of being a happy, healthy, effective person, right? So there are all sorts of areas of the human experience that are that are foreign language to me, uh, unfortunately. And I don't blame myself for this. I, I guess it was part of my, my reaction to growing up in, in foster care. So my friend says, I'd probably shame you and I'd bully you and I'd make fun of you and I'd call you a pussy to try to force you to drink which seems weird to me. Like my friends, like people who know me would never try to push or force or bully me to drink. That just seems incredibly self-destructive. So it seems to me that two thirds of the population can drink without problem, but probably a third of people should abstain from gambling, abstain from drinking, abstain from pornography. Now, I don't generally, I don't enjoy being around people who've had a few drinks, right? That does not improve the experience for me. My friend says, maybe you just need the right amount of bullying. Right? I just don't like the effect of alcohol on people. They get stupid. They lose, seems like, five IQ points every drink. Well, maybe I just don't want to be sober around people drinking. 
So, yeah, there's nothing in it for me when other people get drunk. So there's nothing in it for me being sober around people who are getting steadily stupider. So people who drink are steadily getting more impaired. Why would enjoy that? So my friend says, well, a decent person with a brain, you know, experiences losing the vice grip on his neuroses for an hour or two. He might experience this as insight or a mark of wisdom. Well, I have not found wisdom and insight from drunks, from people who are drunk. I, I just haven't experienced. I, I don't find people becoming more insightful and more wise after a couple of drinks. This is just experiential experiential wisdom 40 that you have no real reason to puritanically isolate yourself from the majority of human beings across all cultures and experiences anti-human and anti-curious yes that would be true if i was a normal healthy person but i'm not right so yeah in, in jewish life drinking is uh, pretty common rabbis will drink at special occasions almost all religious jews will drink on special occasions there's no basis for your stance, 40. It's just a neurotic remnant of Seventh-day Adventist life, just the same as vegetarianism. It's nonsensical. It's more likely damaging than just neutral. A rational, curious person would buy a couple of alcoholic drinks just for an experiment, drink two in an hour, measure the effects two hours later, do it alone or do it on a stream. It's no big deal. Convincing yourself that there's nothing in it is, uh, is stupid. Right. Yeah, I would say that's probably true for healthy, happy, normal people, not true for multiply addicted, self-destructive people like myself. So my friend says, I suspect 40 likes not drinking because it's a status marker trait that he can participate in. It gives social coherence to a neurotic and puritanical unwillingness to try a beer or two. Well, I did try a beer at my high school graduation. I did not like it. I've probably had the equivalent of maybe a dozen glasses of wine in my life and uh, I just don't think it's a good idea for me warm buzz can make people more sociable yes and a lot of people like to feign being buzzed or drunk so that they can avoid responsibility but yeah to push somebody anybody with a history of self-destruction or multiple addictions to drink is evil Right, indisputable. I'd say some people, maybe up to a third of the population, should not experiment with drinking. Also, I often have duties that require me to be sober when I'm around drinking friends, such as driving people around or otherwise taking responsibility for my friends. So, almost all my friends drink. It never occurs to them to push me to drink. So, to know me and to push me to drink. Uh, to me, that shows that you're a dangerous and destructive person. Not that you're going to actually push or bully me into drinking. I have no concern about my being vulnerable to being bullied into drinking or being bullied into using drugs. But I have other vulnerabilities of which I'm probably not even aware. And someone who is so cavalier with the well-being of others that they would bully them into drinking. Yeah, I say that that demonstrates the likelihood that you're that you have significant uh, dangerous and destructive tendencies just as I do, right? Precisely because I have dangerous and destructive tendencies, I don't drink. That's where I'm coming from. And he wasn't, again, I was never enamored with him, but again, stranger things have happened that mediocre people rise to the top of bureaucracies. I mean, um, so, but that possibility never could happen. 
because again, much like Martin, who wanted to be considered a writer, he wanted to be like, oh, I, I want to be Mike Enoch, basically. And, you know, live off that. So we have this like movement of people who want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be anonymous, yet they want to be famous, at least famous in the movement. And then they're terrified by even the prospect of, you know, being exposed or if someone who isn't in movement culture, who basically won't, you know, will lap up like milk, you know, some podcast about, you know, how the Jews control the White House or, you know, illegal immigrants are horrible or whatever. And this will, it certainly doesn't always lead to suicide, but it just often does. And it certainly doesn't, you know, I mean, again, I don't know what the percentage is. I, I couldn't examine this, but I don't know, one or 5%. When you think about suicide, that's pretty high. So I just, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I don't want this to sound like once again, Richard Spencer's being an asshole, but sometimes you have to be an asshole and you have to be cruel only to be kind. That coach character, how much better would it have been if he had never been on a single podcast? And instead, if he had kind of, you know, networked a little bit, but in, in, in environments where security can be maintained and certainly where he's not being promoted as a leader or content generator or whatever, it would have been a lot better for everyone. But again, is it unfair that he was doxxed? Yes, but to a degree, but also not. It's perfectly fair. You put something out on the internet, you need to face the consequences. I mean, I said this about the like, you know, um, libs of TikTok girl in a, in a monologue that I did um, a month or two ago, where it's like, okay, I, I agree that if, you know, the, the Washington Post going out of their way and doxing some right-wing Twitter account, that is unfair and distasteful. But this is, you know, she had entered the arena. She had morphed into this, you know, content generator for the right, just giving them everything that they want. They just lap it up like a cat laps up milk. I mean, just this, you know, look at how crazy. Now I'm wondering, is the tide turning on Richard Spencer? So I invited Colin Liddell to bash Richard Spencer a couple of days ago, and he had no interest. So compared to 99.5% of people on the distant right, Richard Spencer is just clearly more interesting more thought-provoking. So I'm wondering, is the tide turning for Richard Spencer because he is consistently entertaining and, and, and thought-provoking? Okay, back to this ter terrific book by Leah Greenfield, Mind, Modernity, and Madness. Like, why are so many people going mad? It's because the essence of a thesis is the more freedom you have, the more likely you are to go mad. So if you have financial freedom, if you have freedom from family or ethnic or, or religious obligations, right? If, if you don't have a, you know, something dragging you down, the more likely you are to go crazy. And so most of the people who throw themselves into distant politics, they don't have close connections. They don't have families and communities that would be disappointed. So the more freedom, right? The more madness and freedom is a result of nationalism because nationalism holds that we're all in it together as a member of the nation. And therefore, there's a certain equality and a certain inherent dignity in the, for the individual. And if the individual has dignity and worth and is valuable, then it should also be expected that they should have freedom to build a life. But that then comes with an enormous responsibility and burden that maybe you don't like the life that you have built, which can be very depressing and incentivize you to leave reality. So... These diseases like manic depression and schizophrenia rip families apart. I mean, suicide just stays with the loved ones left behind in a, in a far more devastating fashion than, than any other way of ending a life. So 
these mental health diseases, manic depression, schizophrenia, they, they change the very nature of the family. They corrode connections that make it a family. They suffocate affection. They destroy trust. They leave the members left to a healthy feeling helpless and hopeless, exhausted by constant and necessary watchfulness. They feel guilty for letting their minds wander to other concerns of having interests and desires which the sick no longer share. So like with suicide, these mental health illnesses like manic depression and schizophrenia you know, probably affect at least half of the American population, not because they're mentally ill themselves, but they suffer because people they love or in their families are mentally ill. Right? This is a colossal social problem. Now, in an age of religion, mental illness would often manifest itself under religious guise, and I come from a background in mentally ill religion, right? The Millerite movement, right? Millerism, the, the doctrines of William Miller, the, 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 the prophet of the immediate destruction of the world on Yom Kippur 1844, that's where Seventh-day Adventism came out of. So in deeply religious milieu, the, the mentally ill will walk around, you know, muttering religious texts or religious prayers. So it's freedom, though. It's not religion as such that is causing so much religiously displaying mental illness. So this is from a 19th century American Journal of Insanity. So it's difficult to believe that pure religion should overthrow the powers of the mind. All right, but a great majority of the cases of insanity attributed to religion can be traced to the ardor of a zeal untempered with prudence. Right? Doesn't this sound like in an age of nationalism, which we're living in now, this zeal untempered by prudence, right? When you have a fanaticism that is grotesque, right, that will lead you insane. So if one already is predisposed to insanity because your life doesn't work and reality is not a happy place, so therefore you are strongly incentivized to leave reality, I think that accounts for most mental illness. The reality that you live, the reality that you have created, right, is not a happy place, so you are strongly incentivized to leave that reality. And when you leave reality further and further and further, at a certain point, you become essentially mentally ill. There was this 18th century French doctor, Jean-Étienne Dominique Esquirol. He said, insanity is a disease of civilization. And the number of the insane is in direct proportion to its progress. The more civilization, the more insanity. So the progress of civilization multiplies madmen. And so he noted in the 18th century, there's less insanity in Spain than in countries where civilization is more advanced. So mental illness used to be known as the English disease because England in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries was the most free nation in the world. And starting in the 19th century, America became the most free nation in the world. And so America is known as the home to the most nut jobs. And so this 18th century French doctor noted there are fewer insane in the northern parts of Norway, where civilization is the lowest, than in the southern provinces where civilization is the highest. And he made diligent inquiry, found no examples of insanity among the native Indians of America. Travelers found none in Africa. And he noted that uh, this mental illness disease is seldom found among savages, but is frequently found in civilization. See the leftists, they're all deranged, blue-haired groomers or whatever. So once you enter that arena, you have to pay the price for it. And 
I just, I don't know. I mean, at this point, it's happened so many times and I've observed this particular personality profile of these people where they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to be famous, but then they're horrified at the notion of anyone actually examining them. And even critically examining their work in the sense that they only write stuff that's just, you know, red meat for their, for the movement, their, their base. And so I, I don't know, like, wouldn't it have been better for Martin if he had never done any of these things? And wouldn't it have been better for, well, for me? Yeah, for 98% of people in distant right politics, they would have been better off never getting involved. Me, frankly, to be able to link up with people who aren't trying to be like mentors or movement leaders, but are actually in positions where they can seriously um, succeed. And maybe, you know, again, not everyone's going to work in the State Department, but who knows, you know, maybe some will, and they could actually do good in some limited capacity, but do good nevertheless. And I, I don't know, I, I just, I look at this and it's just so predictable at this point. And I don't know, I just, I just feel like I do want to say these things to people. Like, we don't need any more, the world does not need any more blogs or, you know, podcasters or whatever. And particularly, and I, I, maybe that's a bit of an overstatement to, to make an effect, but what I'm saying is we don't need any more of this kind of whining that is basically all the movement does, you know, like, oh, you know, you know the, 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 we're being occupied by Mexicans or, you know, look, there's a Jew in, you know, uh, Joe Biden's cabinet or whatever. It's like no shit on the latter and on the former, that's really just kind of, that's propaganda talk in the worst sense of the word. We're not being occupied by, you know what I'm talking about. It's just red meat for the movement. We don't need any more of that. It's not actually healthy to do that. And I agree that we're in a kind of weird situation. I don't think that people like myself are going to be jailed anytime soon. And I do have antennae and, you know, I mean, figuratively, not literally, but um, I do have antennae. And if I start to sense that, I might very well flee the country or something. But I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And so, I don't, but like, I'm willing to face the consequences that are actually out there, which is serious criticism. Um, for me, a lot of bad faith criticism. I mean, it just, it comes with the territory and you have to be willing to deal with it. And if you're not psychologically able to do it, you don't need to do it. The second point, which I think is equally important, maybe even more important, is that, again, we don't need any more red meat. What we could really use are people who want to build infrastructure or make this into something that isn't just, you know, did you read the latest blog or listen to someone's... Now, these are, these are really good points by Richard. The, the one proviso is that he clearly doesn't want competition for being a thought leader, right? He wants to produce the blogs. He, he wants to produce the podcast. He's not going to dial back on, on being the center of attention. He just doesn't want other people to do what he does. Now, he has some good, good arguments, right? That's why he's so consistently interesting. Back to mind, modernity, and madness. And there's a great quote here from 19th century publication, American Journal of Insanity. Do you still subscribe to the American Journal of Insanity? So this publication notes, insanity is rare in barbarous nations. Civilization favors the development of madness. All right, because with civilization and freedom, you get to more indulge your passions. You can pursue a wider diversity of interests. You can thirst for power. You can enjoy the the excitement of your mental energies. You can feel the tremendous disappointment in your affections and anticipations, while the wants of the savage are limited. 
right? In a more polished state of society, man dwells upon his injuries, real or supposed, yaks silently, cherishes hope of enjoyment, such as the sweets of revenge, right? This condition, when followed by humiliation and disappointment, naturally tends to mental illness. So it's the diseases of civilization that have led people mad. So madness is not brought about by the progress of civilization, right? It's brought about by nationalism, the cultural framework of modernity, this new secular, egalitarian, essentially humanistic and democratic image of reality. So God has been dethroned. Religion has been dethroned as the ultimate reality. With nationalism, it's the people. It's the nation and the nation state that is the ultimate reality. So with, with nationalism, you get varying degrees of equality and liberty. People have the ability to construct their own destinies, to love and to be happy. Now, the other side of the coin is that benefits always come with costs. So madness has continually fueled nationalism's most destructive passions, caused an appalling amount of harm, and may well end up destroying Western civilization. Right? So violence before the age of nationalism was largely rational and natural, right? nature being inescapably red of tooth and claw. Right? That's how life was in the wild. So rape was all in a day's work. It was considered a crime only insofar as it concerned the property of someone whose property was a matter of social concern. Murder or mutilation, which one might accidentally survive, these were considered a crime on an individual level. And it was generally committed when it would most efficiently lead to the achievement of some desired goal, such as robbery or political victory. And then this instrumental rationality for violence applied on the collective level as well. So Genghis Khan wiped out entire populations of settlement which resisted his conquest. He left no man, woman, or child alive. But he didn't do it because he enjoyed slaughtering people. He didn't do it because he felt called to do so by God. He was not a cruel man, according to historians. Right? You may feel bad for the wide-eyed, helpless cubs whose, whose sire can no longer protect them, but when a lion devours the young of another in an attempt to claim the females of the tribe for his own end, do we call him cruel, right? Murder can be committed as a duty because it was traditionally the right thing to do as in family vendettas of the early feudal period, right? This was a dictate of tradition. It was conceived as part of inviolable universal law it, that we had no choice but to obey. But by the 16th century, we have a dramatic rise in irrational violent crime. And that's what we're seeing all around America today. So whether it's a Lee Harvey Oswald or a Jack the Ripper, we have all these violent, violent acts by individuals brought about by madness. This kind of throws a wrench into the innermost workings of our legal machine. So when people get diagnosed as mentally ill, they largely get to skate on punishment for the horrific violence that they have wreaked. So the majority of the famous cases of murder, the most terrifying cases of murder, such as campus shootings, serial killings, and political assassinations, are indeed ideological, right? But they're also usually delusional and, and mad, right? We've got all these murders committed by people who are severely mentally ill. And... Even in the 19th century, psychiatrists saw that politics increasingly supplied the exciting causes for mental illness. 
right? So the already disturbed and deranged and lacking will often latch on to politics as an exciting relief from reality. And then they get cocooned and that leads to even more madness and self-destruction. Podcasts or live stream or whatever. And I feel like that's what's been just constantly missing is people who do the stuff that isn't like fun. And, and, you know, and a lot of that stuff, I mean, just constantly writing articles, most people kind of burn out. Like you kind of say what you can say writing, you know, 500 or 2000 word rants. And then you're just kind of like, all right, I've said it. I don't need, you burn out because there's no actual development that's taking place. And we actually do need people who are either going to be in institutions of power and will keep their mouth shut and succeed um, and become rich and powerful. <laughs> that's good. We need that. And we need people who are saying like, well, I might not actually be rich and powerful, but I'm actually very competent and we can professionalize things and make this work so that people who are doing this work and who are the best people, i.e. to be brutally frank here, not Martin Rojas and Devin Soche, are actually getting salaries and producing work and feel professional and, and have some degree of prestige conveyed upon them. That's what needs to happen. And I do, I mean, again, I, I think maybe call me, you know, call me cynical if you will, but like I've seen so many of these people that I just, it's like, I, I look at it, I'm just like, well, another one bites the dust. Another one did the thing that I have constantly be telling people not to do. <laughs> and another person who didn't really add anything has faced all of these terrible consequences. So anyway, I mean, this goes back to my own kind of prejudice where I just think things need to be centralized and you know, they're more powerful when they're centralized. We don't need this. I mean, it was great in 2016, this like broad, everyone's got a podcast, everyone's a Twitter superstar. <coughs> Okay, some interesting stuff there from Richard Spencer. Good article on American Thinker. So I, I asked Amy Wax what were the websites that she recommended. And she mentioned UNZ, UNZ.com, Tacky's Mag, American Greatness, American Thinker, The Free Beacon, American Spectator, National Review Online, American Compass, Compact, American Renaissance, and American Mind. So those are... Amy Wax's recommendations for websites to take in. Excuse me. But that went about as far as it could go. So I, I just, I don't know, go Google that name. Um, think about what I've said and, you know, think about it in terms of your own personal life. Maybe that's not a temptation for you. Maybe you do want to be someone who's, you know, in the, in the background or, or someone who mostly consumes because you're living your life. You know, you have a family, you want to have a career, you want to start a new business. Like that's really good. Maybe some of you do want to say, I want to be that serious professional person. I'm not doing this for e-fame. You know, I... Okay, what happens if you're in a crowd and there's a shooter? So one mindset when you're around a lot of people always remain in a state of yellow alert. So yellow alert simply means that you're calm, you're aware of your surroundings and the people around you. If people are behaving strangely, you take note, you move away, you avoid them. So white means you're completely oblivious. You're in a white state, it means you're oblivious. Yellow means you're calm and alert. Orange means that your level of arousal is much higher. And then when, when you're in red, then you're just you know, ready, to, ready to throw down. Right? Red is the highest danger before you just essentially black out and lose your mind. Uh, to always mentally map out routes of escape in your vicinity, where's the nearest side street? What could get you the quickest out of harm's way? So get to know the lay of the land. 
if you have to make your way through a crowd, stay on the fringes. The best seats at a concert may be in the center, but they also give you the least mobility. Something happens and you're in the middle of the crowd. You'll be caught in the midst of masses of people surging away and the crowd is deciding your movement's not you. Shooters are only one type of mass casualty event. Vehicles are well-documented weapons of destruction, so stay away from curbs, even if it's the best spot to view the parade. Pedestrians nearest the curb will bear the brunt of a vehicular attack. Avoid confrontation. Don't engage in political or religious discussions with people you don't know. Don't wear your political convictions on your T-shirt or hat. It's the wrong place and the wrong time. This gets women pepper sprayed and men beaten. Be Be inconspicuous. Be the gray man. Don't wear bright clothing. Wear sneakers or footwear that allow you the most mobility. So don't wear high heels to a parade. Don't run if you can help it. Unless everyone else is running, you don't want to attract unwanted attention. If you're with friends, stay together. If you can't be with friends, agree on a meeting place where in case you get separated, you can meet up. Avoid being caught against walls, fences, blockades, or other solid objects. People get crushed by masses of people fleeing the area. If law enforcement arrives, stay out of their way. If you're going to be in a crowd for the day, you might bring more than a folding chair and a picnic lunch. Consider carrying a small medical kit, such as a tourniquet and a compression bandage that can help control the bleeding. Then uh, this is on American Thinker. Robert Weisberg writes, Understanding Recent Mass Shootings. He mentions that people, Americans live in two separate worlds, right? So one is the world of the white shooter. Right, where they use a high-powered weapon, kill multiple victims. The carnage is quickly followed by public outrage, intensive on-site media coverage, never-ending publicized pronouncements on gun violence and condemnation of Republican racism and xenophobia that fuels this outrage. Second universe consists of urban black-on-black shootings, typically of the drive-by shooting variety using handguns. Relatively few are killed, but many more are wounded, including innocent bystanders and children. Now, even though... This death toll far exceeds the first type of incident. Their cumulative uh, impact doesn't get a lot of media attention. All right, these inner city killings don't generate widespread outrage. Right? It's inconceivable the president will visit Baltimore, Chicago to console victims of inner city violence. So candidates for public office tend to ignore these murders. So the reaction to black-on-black mass killing, even when children are murdered, is generally ho-hum. So why are white perpetrated mass killings so terrifying? Because for most Americans, the typical black-on-black killing might as well be on Mars insofar as it can impact your life. And if you want to escape being shot by a black shooter, just avoid any venue where blacks congregate, particularly if local gang activity is present. If you happen to be near a black neighborhood or a group of youths being rowdy, immediately leave. So avoiding risk is far more difficult, however, if the mass killer is white. So predicting where the next black-on-black shooting will occur is relatively easy. The opposite is true if the shooter is white. That's why the white shooter is more terrifying. So sooner or later, whites will attend some public event like a 4th of July parade, a food festival, a concert, a bar, movie theater, a chain store like Walmart or church or synagogue, or places that have experienced deadly mass shootings by whites. Also, there are thousands of vulnerable schools. So it's this psychological uncertainty that is critical. Mass shootings perpetrated by whites are beyond our personal control, and it is this randomness that makes them so terrifying. It's impossible to totally escape a killer at Walmart or a movie theater or a church or a synagogue, no matter how prudent you are. So the white shooter 
It's likely to be mentally unbalanced and often indifferent to choosing victims, and this makes it even more psychologically disturbing, the unpredictability. So this unpredictability is what makes terrorism successful. Despite the odds of being killed or being virtually zero, people will demand that action be taken and no amount of rhetoric about the minuscule odds of being killed in such shootings will calm anxieties. So there are no foolproof defenses against these unpredictable anxiety-generating deadly shootings. Even the most intensive background check prior to purchasing a gun can never be 100% effective. It's impossible to harden more than a handful of public spaces. And many of these mass killing events are not the result of guns. You've got homegrown terrorism, such as what occurred April 19th, 1995 in Oklahoma City, when Timothy McVeigh detonated a bomb that uh, killed 168 people. And it's easy to find online information on how to build bombs. And then you have people like the Unabomber, who has eluded capture for 17 years while mailing pipe bomb to his victims. You have anthrax attacks. You have the Boston Marathon bombers. All right. So in the final analysis, mass shootings are not national catastrophes if judged by the total number of people killed. But the public's appetite for televised violence is never satisfied. And it's safer to publicize the, the rarer and more psychologically disturbing mass shootings perpetrated by whites want to do the shit work. There's so much shit work. Do you know how boring it is to index a book? I mean, yeah, that kind of, you want to do that difficult stuff and actually contribute so that something can grow and become professionalized. So anyway, just some thoughts on the situation. I don't know if you guys also. Okay. This guy made a comedy special and some streaming service did not, service did not want to, did not want to play his, uh, Comedy special. Talk about uh, how they're taking away your scoop scoops, ladies. <laughs> Isn't that fucked up? They try to take away your scoop scoops. It's unbelievable. I just want to let y'all know right now, ladies, uh, I am with you. I think it's your body, your choice. I agree with you on that. 100%. I agree with you when you say that men should have no say in the decisions you make with your bodies. Those are your decisions to make and yours alone. And I feel that way because uh, at the end of the day, when we all go up to heaven and God's like, why are we all killing babies? We're going to be like, y'all. <laughs> I think they're very clear whose decision this was, God. Uh, <laughs> looks like you need to pay for your sins, babe. <laughs> Even though I paid for your sins. Come on, y'all. Chivalry ain't dead to that baby, as you know the rules. Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Yeah, abortion. <laughs> abortion, 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 man. It's a tricky one. When I was living uh, in my old place in New York, I lived down the block from an abortion clinic. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> location, location, location. <laughs> And no bullshit, that's the wildest place in New York. Like, it's a fucking carnival outside of there every single day. Like, people come to New York and they go to, like, Broadway plays and shit. They'll literally spend thousands of dollars to watch Harry Potter the musical when they could just stand outside the clinic and watch something really disappear. 
Feed us the leaders. <laughs> I remember one time I was walking by the clinic and I saw a father and his daughter outside and his daughter looked like she was 10 years old. Now, I don't want to divide the crowd politically here, uh, but for me, that's a little late. This is just me. I'm not putting my views on you. But personally, I think a fetus becomes a life around the third grade. That, that's, I think that's a life. I do believe that's a life, okay? Maybe we could roll it back a few years from there. But definitely, if you could spell abortion, we don't abort you. That's just the rule that I have in my book, okay? So naturally, I'm like, yo, I got to save this girl's life. I walk over. I get a little closer. Turns out he wasn't aborting his daughter. Thank God. Uh, what he was actually doing was protesting the abortion clinic. And I've never seen this shit before in real life. It was crazy. Like, he's like heckling these girls as they go in. You know, he's just screaming at them, you're going to burn in hell. And these girls are so New York about it. They're like, I just have chlamydia, you pussy. <laughs> burn in hell, I'm burning now. That's why I'm going to the fucking clinic. So I'm watching this go down, and I'm torn, right? Because naturally, as a man, I want to protect these women, right? But as a comic, I love a rose, right? So I'm like, how do I fit in this shit? And then all of a sudden, this UPS employee walks into the clinic, and I had to. I had to. At least someone wants to deliver. It was the right thing to say. Guys, he got in on it. He was like, same day. It was unbelievable, bro. Chemistry was there. Chemistry was there. So I'm standing outside a clinic right next to this dude who was like very passionate about abortion. I realized I never spoken to one of these guys before. So I'm like, I just got to talk to him. So I went up to him and I was like, hey, man, I don't want to interrupt your old take your daughter to work day. I think, I think it's great. You want to spend time with your family. Obviously, not everybody here gets that. I go, buddy, I just got to know why you're so against abortion. And the guy looks at me. He goes, I'll tell you what changed it all for me. It's these new sonograms. Thank God a few of you guys said, what? We're idiots. I didn't even know they upgraded the sonographs. They completely changed the sonographs. It's not like the uh, back in the day shit to look at you and pay your cable. Remember those? Remember the black paper with the gray clouds on it? Those were abortable. Let's just be honest, right? Like, doctor hands you that shit like an Etch a sketch. You're like, not today. <laughs> See you later, kiddo. But the new ones are HD. 4D, not 3D, 4D. You could hear the baby like, keep me. I'm in here. What are you doing out there? That's not where you hang a shirt. So... I'm looking at these images, right? And I'm like, man, this is visceral. This is, hard to, this is hard to disagree with. And then I noticed all the images he's showing me are from much later on in the pregnancy. So I was like, hold up, hold up, hold up. What about early on? He goes, I don't care. It's killing a baby. I'm like, but bro, it's not even a baby yet. He goes, yeah, but if you leave it there, it's going to grow into a baby, so it's a baby. And I was like, you know what? Your daughter's fucking hot, bro. <laughs> this guy loses his fucking mind. 
the fuck you mean my daughter saw she's 10 years old? What the hell is wrong with you? I'm like, yeah, but if we leave her there. She's going to grow into a woman, Pops. Okay, that's uh, Andrew Schultz. And uh, that was too hot for whatever streamer was going to stream his special. Now, Tucker Carlson did a pretty good show last night, the intro. So let's play some of that. And welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Amazingly, it was just over a week ago that Joe Biden single-handedly ended gun violence in the United States. How'd you miss that? Well, you probably were distracted by all the other amazing things Joe Biden is doing, like making air travel more efficient and winning the war in Ukraine. So you probably weren't paying attention on June 25th when a law called the Bipartisan Safer Communities Act was signed. And it, true to its name, was in fact bipartisan. Fashionably liberal Republicans like John Cornyn helped write it. So the question is, will it live up to the second half? Will it make communities safer? Emphatically, yes, said Joe Biden, quote, it's going to save a lot of lives. How many lives exactly? Well, in the characteristically modest words of Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy, quote, what we are doing will save thousands of lives, thousands. And that makes a kind of sense because now that we're going to have red flag laws in all 50 states, laws that allow the government to disarm you by force without charging you with a crime, without bothering with due process. Once we do that and we are doing it, mass shootings like the one we saw in Buffalo this spring will never happen again. That's what they promised us. And the media assured us it was true every word of it. What they never mentioned was, it was not only ridiculous and false, it was provably false because actually gun control does not stop bad people from using guns. It's not a talking point. It's a fact. Here's how you know. On the day that 18-year-old Peyton Gendron murdered 10 people in Buffalo, the state of New York already had a red flag law. And Gendron was exactly the sort of person they told us that red flag laws would stop from committing mass murder. Gendron had bragged in school, remember, that he wanted to murder large groups of people. That was a red flag, speaking of. He'd already been caught by his mother killing a cat with his hands. Gendron was so obviously crazy and threatening that at one point, New York State police came over and investigated him. But in the end, nothing happened. It had no effect, these laws. And that's not surprising. Ask anyone who knows anything about violence and who isn't getting paid to lie to you about it, and you will learn the truth, which is it's almost impossible to stop someone who's dead set on harming other people. Prison guards get killed regularly. There are no guns in prison. There are plenty of psychopaths. Psychopaths are the problem. In case you need still more evidence, just yesterday on the 4th of July, there was yet another mass shooting in the state of Illinois. Illinois is a state with red flag laws, assault weapons bans, every other form of gun control that authoritarians can dream up in a country that still has the Second Amendment. But the shooting happened anyway. It happened in Highland Park, which is a pretty suburb north of Chicago. And once again, the shooter was exactly the person they claimed red flag laws would stop before he hurt others. His name is Robert Creamer. He's a 21-year-old amateur rapper with a long and documented history of bizarre and very threatening behavior. And on Monday, he lived up to what everyone who knew him thought he might someday do. He dressed in women's clothes. He scaled a fire So why can't we have more academic investigation to if there are any like, physical cues of what type of people are more likely to murder you? So the limited amount of academic research that we have on this is that uh, killers are much more likely to have facial disfiguration. I mean... Just just look at this guy. He's obviously creepy. We should have unlimited free inquiry in what are the signs that you might be dealing with someone who is criminally predisposed, right? If, if there are marks on the face, if there are any kind of physical signals that someone is more likely to be dangerous, right? I think we should have wide open inquiry in, in what are the clues that you you know, a dealing with, with a dangerous person. I mean, it should be an app. Right? There should be an app that just profiles the people around you 
and gives you a read on how dangerous they're likely to be. I mean, yeah, it'd be nice if like nature color-coded people for our benefit, but I'm talking about something sophisticated, not racist. People added to the roof of local business and he opened fire on a parade. Here's what it looked like. So awful. As I said, authorities say seven people have died from that shooting. At least 36 others are wounded. Here's what it looked like from the ground. Good people, terrified, bleeding, in some cases dead on the 4th of July. It's awful. Now, a normal person sees a tape like that and takes a breath as the tragedy of it sinks in as it should. Americans were just murdered for no reason. So pause a beat before politicizing their deaths. Show some respect. You owe them that. But social media do not encourage respect. Social media are the domain of partisans. And the first question a partisan asks never changes. It's this. How can I use other people's misery to become more powerful myself? So on the basis of that, the usual morons leap in to blame the other team. They did it. It's their fault. Elect me. Eric Swallow did this immediately, of course, speaking of morons, but so did many others. These are the sort of people whose first instinct is to ascribe political or racial motives to every crime to prove their point about how they were right all along. And sometimes they are right. Sometimes racists and ideologues do commit crimes, but that's not the majority. Some mass killers are white, some mass killers are black, some are right wing, quite a few are left wing actually, though the New York Times never mentions it. But one thing nearly all mass killers have in common, almost every single one of them with some but few exceptions, all of them are alienated young men. That's the common thread. They're young, they're male, they're crazy. Robert Cremo certainly fit that stereotype. Have you seen the guy's picture? If he sat next to you in the bus, you would move immediately. He literally had face tattoos and dressed in costume in public. On his YouTube channel, which for some reason was very quickly scrubbed from the internet by authorities, why is that? We found it. Cremo posted videos of the presidential motorcade along with newspaper clippings about the Kennedy assassination, speaking of red flags. Months ago, he was filming the Highland Park parade route, the one he shot up. Not surprisingly, at a press conference today, police acknowledged they had encountered Cremo several times before. Three years ago, for example, police arrived after he had attempted to kill himself. I'm going to relay some information from two prior instances that occurred here in Highland Park. Uh, the first was in April of 2019. Uh, an individual contacted Highland Park Police Department uh, a week after learning of Mr. Cremo attempting suicide. Uh, this was a delayed report, so Highland Park still responded to the residents a week later, spoke with Cremo, spoke with Cremo's parents, and the matter was being handled by uh, mental health professionals at that time. The second occurred in September of 2019. A family member reported that Cremo said he was going to kill everyone and Cremo had a collection of knives. The police responded to his residence. The police removed 16 knives, a dagger, and a sword from Cremo's home. So there you have it. Back in April of 2019, police found out that Cremo had tried to kill himself. And thank God, all right, we can all thank God for the mental health professionals who, who intervened. Like, where would we be without these mental health professionals? A few months later in September, he threatened to, quote, kill everyone. So police took away his knives, and that was it. They didn't follow up. And even if they had, what would they have done? Taken away his guns? He'd get more knives. In any case, police didn't think the situation warranted further steps, as we saw Cremo was still able to buy firearms legally, despite being obviously mentally ill. Now, pause for a second. Why is that? Look at Robert Bobby Cremo. Would you sell a gun to that guy? Does he seem like a nutcase? Of course he does. So why didn't anyone raise an alarm? Well... Maybe because he didn't stand out. Maybe because there are a lot of young men in America who suddenly look and act a lot like this guy. It's not an attack, it's just true. 
Like Cremo, they inhabit a solitary fantasy world of social media, porn, and video games. They're high on government-endorsed weed. Smoke some more. It's good for you. They're numbed by the endless psychotropic drugs that are handed out at every school in the country by crackpots posing as counselors. And of course, they're angry. They know that their lives will not be better than their parents. They'll be worse. That's all but guaranteed. They know that. They're not that stupid. And yet the authorities in their lives, mostly women, never stops lecturing them about their so-called privilege. You're male. You're privileged. Imagine that. Try to imagine an unhealthier, unhappier life than that. So a lot of young men in America are going nuts. Are you surprised? And by the way, a shockingly large number of them have been prescribed psychotropic drugs by their doctors, SSRIs or antidepressants. And that would include quite a few mass shooters. And keep in mind, again, these drugs are meant to prevent crazy behavior. And yet there seems to be a connection. Eric Harris, the Columbine killer, was in both Zoloft and Luvox. A year earlier, a 15-year-old called Kip Kinkle shot his parents and dozens of classmates. He was on Prozac. In 2005, a 16-year-old called Jeff Wiesa killed his grandfather and 10 kids in Minnesota. He was on Prozac, too. So was 27-year-old Stephen Kamerzak, who murdered six people at Northern Illinois University. In 2012, you may recall, when 25-year-old James Holmes walked into a movie theater and shot 82 people. He was on Zoloft. The list goes on and on and on and on. It includes the shooter at the Washington Navy Yard in 2013. That would be 34-year-old Aaron Alexis. It also includes Dylan Roof. He's the 21-year-old who shot up the church in Charleston. Now, he was apparently a racist, and we've heard a lot about that. Fine. But we've heard next to nothing about the fact that he was taking SSRIs, he and many, many others. You're not supposed to notice, but some have. The Journal of Political Psychology once assembled a list of dozens more mass killings, all committed by young people, young men, on prescription drugs. So is there a connection? Well, we don't know definitively. We do know there are a whole lot more of these drugs being taken by kids than ever before. And by the entire population, who's not taking some prescription medication at this point? Between 1991 and 2018, total SSRI prescriptions in the United States rose by more than 3,000%. 3,000%. 3,000% of anything is a massive change. You don't see changes like that. But the point of this change was to make Americans calmer, saner, happier. Take these drugs and your problems will go away. Yes, you'll become numb. You will lose part of yourself. You no longer experience deep joy. You'll become part robot. But at least you won't want to kill yourself or harm other people. That was the promise. 3,000%. Did it work? Let's see. Over the very same period, the suicide rate in the United States jumped by 35%. Did it work? Well, millions of people got on anti-suicide drugs and we wound up with many more suicides. So maybe it's not working. Is it possible it's making the problem worse? You think? Let's see. Mass shootings also increased dramatically over the very same period. Here's a chart that shows it. Now, the halflets on Twitter always scream the same thing. (laughs) Correlation is not causation. All right, whatever that means. But tell us, halfwits, what is going on exactly? What, what does that chart mean? We know that SSRIs are dangerous. It says so right on the label. They increase, quote, the risk of anxiety, agitation, irritability, hostility, aggressiveness, impulsivity, and mania. Oh, not a big deal. That's not causation. Then what is it? According to one meta-study by the FDA, young people who've been prescribed SSRIs have an increased rate of suicide. Oh, wait, more suicide? Weren't they supposed to reduce suicide, but we're getting more suicide? Let's, let's stop right there. But we're not stopping. We're accelerating. Between 2015 and 2019, the use of SSRI drugs by teens in the United States rose by nearly 40%. So it's not working. Let's do a whole lot more of it. This seems like a massive and extremely obvious problem. Extremely obvious. People aren't themselves. They're taking drugs that appear to be causing the behavior the drugs are designed to prevent. Why don't they talk about this on TV? Oh, let's see. In 2020, the pharmaceutical industry spent more than $4.5 billion advertising on national television in this country. Now, how much is that? Well, to put it in some context, Pfizer spent more on advertising in 2020 than it did on research and development. 
but it wasn't a bad decision. It was a great decision. Pfizer's revenue doubled last year to more than $81 billion. Now, how'd they do that? Well, the ad campaign paid off. It helped convince politicians to require the entire population to take Pfizer products. Products that don't work as advertised, that have killed large numbers of people, and whose side effects are indemnified against lawsuits by the United States Congress. That's quite a business model. You might think it could be a subject of a media story. But no, no stories on Pfizer. They're paid to be fanboys of Pfizer, therefore they are. Here's a tweet, for example, from CNBC, which is ostensibly a news organization, and we're quoting. Pfizer is uniquely positioned to advance mRNA, which could be a breakthrough for other infectious diseases, genetic diseases, and cancer. Parenthesis, paid post for Pfizer, hashtag ad. <laughs> it's on their Twitter account, a news organization. They're admitting it's a paid post for Pfizer. But in CNBC's defense, they're not alone. Pretty much all the news coverage you see in the United States is a paid post for Pfizer. Watch this. Anderson Cooper 360, brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News Nightline, brought to you by Pfizer. The Human Factor, brought to you by Pfizer. CBS Health Watch, sponsored by Pfizer. Good Morning America is brought to you by Pfizer. CNN Tonight, brought to you by Pfizer. Oh, it's all brought to you by Pfizer. Now, why is that? Because TV channels don't prescribe drugs. Doctors do. So why would Pfizer, a drug company, be advertising on television? Well, we're not sure of the answer. Let's put it this way. Don't hold your breath waiting for CNN or Good Morning America to do a hard-hitting investigative piece on the potential connection between prescription drugs and violence. Probably not going to happen since they sponsor those channels. They're going to keep telling you it's all about guns. It's all about guns. Does anyone really believe it's all about guns? <laughs> No one thinks that. If you really thought that guns caused violence, you would, for example, demand far harsher prosecution of gun possession in the cities. That's where most of the shooters, shootings are taking place. But no one's doing that. Why? Because that's where Democratic voters live. So there's no chance anyone's going to crack down on them. Instead, politicians are using these tragedies to do what they've always wanted to do, which is disarm their political opponents. Here's someone who's kind of dumb enough to say it out loud. This is the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. It is devastating that a celebration of America was ripped apart by our uniquely American plague. A day dedicated to freedom has put into stark relief the one freedom we as a nation refuse to uphold, the freedom of our fellow citizens to live without the daily fear of gun violence. It's the 4th of July, a day for reflection on our freedoms. Our founders carried muskets, not assault weapons. And I don't think a single one of them would have said that you have a constitutional right to an assault weapon with a high-capacity magazine. Does a single person watching that, does even one person watching that believe for a second that J.P. Pritzker has had an authentic human emotion in the last 20 years other than gluttony, greed, and the lust for power? No, no one believes that. This is politics. Disarm the law-abiding. That's the first thing every authoritarian regime does, of course. Make sure the other side can't fight back, of course. That's what they all do. So, of course, in New York, the state's unelected governor, speaking of democracy, her name was Kathy Hochul. Used to have a little vaccinated necklace, probably doesn't wear that anymore. But Hochul disapproved her law requiring gun buyers to provide their social media accounts to the government. Hmm, paging First Amendment lawyers here. Applicants must prove to Kathy Hochul's satisfaction that they have, and we're quoting, the essential character, temperament, and judgment necessary to be entrusted with a weapon. So the idea is Kathy Hochul, who's not been elected governor, is the holder of your rights. And she kind of doles them out based on your obedience. Now, this is an inversion of the basic promise of America, which is your rights came before the government. They were given to you by God. Can we use that word now? And the government merely safeguards them. But once you get rid of that, like Joe Biden does, once you start telling us that I've got your rights, and if you do what I tell you to do, I'll give them to you, there's nothing you can't do. So New York's not stopping there. New York has also just made it a felony to carry a firearm in any public place, unless you're Kathy Oakle's bodyguards. That would include public transit, Times Square. You can't carry a firearm in churches or schools where mass shootings have been known to occur. So that means the law-abiding in New York can't defend themselves. 
So are there data on this? Did Kathy Ogle consult some kind of study telling us would save lives? No, nope, not even pretending. She's doing it just because she feels like it. Just admitted that on camera. Watch. Governor, do you have the numbers to show that it's the concealed carry permit holders that are committing crimes? I don't need to have numbers. I don't need, I don't have to have a data point to point to to say that this is going to make, all I know is I have a responsibility to the people of this state. Oh, I don't need numbers. I don't need to have the numbers. I'm acting purely on emotion because this is how I feel because I care. Wow. Living down to stereotype anybody? There's no actual evidence it will work. She doesn't need that. She wants more power. Watch Kathy Oakle explain. Imagine you're on a crowded subway and you bang into somebody inadvertently, tempers flare, and the person that you banged into happens to be carrying a concealed weapon. Imagine you're in a bar, someone starts a fight, they have a concealed weapon on them. Imagine you're in Times Square, visiting with your family, you're on the way to a show with your family, and you're surrounded by people with concealed weapons. Does that make you feel more or less safe? Where's your vaccinated necklace, Kathy Hochul? Why are you just bragging about that? You're not bragging about being vaccinated anymore. Why is that exactly? Maybe she'll come on and explain. But her reasoning is, as soon as we tell people on the subway, bad people, they can't have guns, they'll immediately obey Kathy Hochul because they voted for her. Oh, wait, nobody did. Because bad people follow the rules? Is that what she's saying? What is she saying exactly? We're not sure. Maybe Jason Whitlock knows. He's the host of Fearless. He joins us now. It's great to see you tonight. Okay. I think that will do it for tonight. Take care. Bye-bye.